and we'll begin reading with verse 12. What I want to talk about this morning is why we die and what to do about it. Uh, it's a subject that uh, I, I know you find interesting because of the recent crash of uh, Continental Flight 1713. It, it's always interesting to me how, even though we're teaching expositorily through books, taking uh, a paragraph at a time, the texts always seem to coincide with what's happening in life. And I, I find a lot of people are asking questions about, uh, about that tragic accident. Why? Why did it happen? And why do we have to die? And what can we do about it? And, and those are the questions that this text deals with. Now let's begin reading with, uh, with verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be, will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you're new to this text, you probably thought uh, what most of us thought the first time we read through it. What on earth is Paul talking about? Uh, here, here's Paul now uh, acting as a rabbi, spinning some yarn about Adam and his, the relationship of Adam and Adam's sin to Jesus and to Jesus' act. And how, how does this all fit together? It doesn't, doesn't seem to make any sense. It doesn't even seem to be logical. Well, well let me explain that Paul is, is very logical. The problem here is that Paul didn't finish his sentence. That, that's why this passage is so difficult to, to explain. Actually, he finished his sentence, but he didn't finish it for quite a while. He started out to make a statement. He got about halfway through the statement, realized that he'd left a loophole, went back to close the loophole, and then a number of verses later, he finishes his statement. And once you understand that, then the passage is very, very simple. All you have to do is connect the end of verse 12 with the, with, with the second clause in verse 18. And read it this way. Therefore, just as sin 
entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And then if you let your eye uh, drop down the page to 18b, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. And everything in between is parenthetical. Whenever someone starts a statement by saying, just so, you expect them to say, or just as, you expect them to say, so. And uh, it takes Paul a while to get to the so also. Now, I want to make some observations about this paragraph, and, and, and then we want to talk about the meaning of it. You can see that there are a series of contrasts between what Adam did and what Christ has done. You also see that uh, uh, Paul is talking about the effect that one person had upon the whole world. Adam acted, and the whole world suffered the results of that action. Jesus acted, and the whole world enjoys the results of that action. You'll notice that Paul talks about sin and death, and then he talks about justification and life. Those are the four key words in the passage. And then also you'll notice the, uh, the reoccurrence of the word reign several times. Sin reigns, death reigns, grace reigns, and then we reign. Now, let's look at the passage and, and see if we can understand what, what Paul is saying. Uh, one of the difficulties in approaching any passage like this is to understand its relationship to what has gone before. Sometimes Paul gives us a grammatical clue, sometimes he doesn't. Here he gives us a clue, but the clue is not too helpful. He says, therefore, it's a result of something that the, this, is, this paragraph is a result of something that's gone before. But we're not sure in what way this passage explains what goes before. I think this is what we have to understand. Someone would raise the question, as, as Paul is arguing about the effects of Christ's life and what he has done for the entire human race, they might argue, how is it that one man could do so much? How could one man's action affects the, uh, act affect the entire human race? And that's what launches Paul into this discussion of, of the one and many. Now, he might have used a lot of different uh, illustrations. He could have said, well, uh, we all speak Greek. In our world, most of us at least, in, in the Middle East, in the part of the world that, we, that, that I live in, we, we speak Greek. How is it that we all speak Greek? Because of one man. 300 years ago, Alexander the Great conquered this part of the world, and he Hellenized us, he Grecianized us, and now we all speak Greek. Or if Paul were, were discussing this issue today, he, he might say something like this. Uh, well, once upon a time, there was a young man climbing around in the Bavarian Alps, he was flunking math. He was having a hard time get, getting on in school, and so he spent a lot of time walking and, and thinking. And, and one day it occurred to him that, that the amount of energy in an atom is equal to the mass of that atom multiplied by the speed of light squared. And that was Albert Einstein, you know, who happened to think that up. And that's since been corroborated by, by physicists and scientists. And Albert Einstein changed the whole world. He launched us into the nuclear age so that one man changed our life. Now, Paul could have used an argument like that, but he doesn't. He, he goes back into the Old Testament to talk about Adam. 
And there's a very important reason for that because Adam is the explanation for it all. He's the explanation for why sin and death reign in the world. What happened? How could one man do so much? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12 that Adam sinned. That was the problem. Adam sinned. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking at this point, now, you, you could not really believe in the myth of Adam and Eve, do you? And, and my answer to that is no, I do not believe in the myth of Adam and Eve. I believe that Adam and Eve was history. I don't believe it was myth at all. I believe it's so because Jesus and the apostles believed in Adam and Eve. Uh, Time Magazine had an interesting article recently. A number of paleontologists and anthropologists are convinced that uh, East Africa is the cradle of civilization because they have discovered the woman from which the entire human race sprang. And a lot of Christians leaped on that statement. Well, that, you know, that proves it, that there really was one mother of the race. There really was a real Eve and a real Adam. Well, that, that sort of argument is, it doesn't really uh, compel me to believe in Adam and Eve. The reason I believe in Adam and Eve is because Jesus did and because his apostles did. His apostles spoke with the authority of Jesus. And because they believed that Adam and Eve were real, live, honest to goodness, sure enough, human beings that lived on the earth, uh, I, I, I have to believe it. I'm not at liberty to question their beliefs. I have to accept it. Now, there are problems, I understand, in the book of Genesis. I've taken science courses, and, and, I, and I understand some of the problems. And, and I, I can't explain Genesis fully to you, and I know that Christians have different sets of belief about, about Genesis, whether the days are 24-hour days, and whether the tree was a real tree, or whether it's a symbol. I understand all of that. And, and I have to be a little bit agnostic about all of that, in the, in the sense that I can't know for sure. But one thing I know for sure is that Adam and Eve really lived. They were historical beings because Jesus and the apostles said so. Everything depends upon that. The way Paul is arguing is that, is that Adam was real and Adam's sin was real. You go back to Genesis uh, chapter 2 and... There's a prohibition, a prohibition given to Adam. He was told that he was, he was not to eat the fruit of that tree, whatever it was. And Adam trespassed. It, it's as though God put a, a fence around the tree and he put up a sign that said, No trespassing, and Adam threw his leg over the fence and he, and he ate of the tree and he sinned. God said, Don't do it, and he did it. And so he sinned. The second thing that we learn from Genesis 2 and 3 is that Adam died. When he sinned, he began to die. Now, it's useless to speculate what would have happened if Adam hadn't sinned. We don't know. That's one of those what-if questions for which there are no answers. I have, a, I have a theory that he would have been translated like Enoch. He would have lived for a thousand years or, or a certain period of time, and then he would have been translated as Elijah was and as Enoch was. I, I don't know. I think that's what might have happened. But what did happen is that he died. Genesis 5 says so. Remember what Eve said to the snake when the snake, the snake seduced her and 
to eat of the tree? And she said, we can't. God said, if you eat of it, you'll surely die. The snake said, you will not die. Genesis 5 says, Adam died. And death entered into the world. Now, that's what Paul means in, 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 verse, in verse 12 when he says that sin entered through one man and death entered through, through one man. Adam sinned, Adam died, and we sinned too. Uh, let me read a quote from uh, Frederick Godet. Uh, Godet is, uh, has a uh, very well-known commentary on the book of Romans. He says this about, about Adam's sin and ours. Adam's sin was a decision whereby he adhered to his own inclination rather than to the divine will and thus created in the whole race still identified with his person the permanent proclivity to prefer inclination to obligation. We have, we have the same bias. We like our own plans better than God's. God puts up a sign that says no trespassing and, and we think that it doesn't apply to us. I can... I can trespass, you see. It's that proclivity, it's that inclination to choose our own way rather than God's way, which the Bible says is, is sin, and it's something that we have inherited from Adam. To use computerese, his sin was downloaded to the next generation. We have in our nature the same inclination as the original. Adam sinned. We sin. We all sin. And that's what theologians call total depravity. We talked about that term a few weeks ago, and it, it troubles some people because they don't like to, to think that we are totally depraved. They, they look around at people that, that they know, and they say, there's some wonderful people that are not Christians. There are, there are non-Christians that have wonderful marriages. It's true. I've, I've sometimes heard it said, you can't have a good marriage without having Christ in the center of it. That's not always true. I, I know some people that really do not care much about, about God. And yet they have wonderful marriages. And they're wonderful fathers. And they're wonderful mothers. And then, of course, there are some who, who are not wonderful mothers or fathers. And, and I know some Christians who don't have wonderful marriages. So what, what do we mean when we say someone is totally depraved? Well, we just mean that, that sin has touched the totality of our being. We're like loaded dice. There's this inherent tendency, this inherent proclivity to, to, to roll in a certain way, to go in a, in, in, a, in a certain way, for a certain number to turn up. And it's something that we inherited from, from Adam. A friend of mine uses an illustration of a tube of toothpaste. He, he says that we're, we're, it's kind of a gross illustration, but it's a good one. We're like a tube of toothpaste. And, and, and someone comes along and steps on the toothpaste and <laughs> the toothpaste comes out. And he says, that's the way we are. We look good on the outside. But when push comes to shove, what we really are comes back. As Kelly's Law puts it, nice guys don't finish nice. Uh, we had our granddaughter over uh, for Thanksgiving. We had all of our kids and grandkids over. Melissa's our, uh, our most recent, our youngest. She's three months. And uh, Randy and I, Randy is her father, we were discussing her sin nature. 
And uh, he, he, you know, it, it was, it's hard for him to, to realize that the children can actually be sinful. Actually, I, I should say it was hard for him to realize that before he had any children. But now he has three. And uh, he, he agrees. She's a little savage. Uh, and in, in talking to him, it reminded me of an article I read some months ago. I went back and, and dug it up. I want to read it to you. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him what he wants, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty. He has no morals, no manners, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. And in case you think that came from the Independent, Independent Fundamental Churches of America, that's the report of the Minnesota Crime Commission. That, that, that's the way children are. It's the way we are. We come into the world with this twist, with this deviant twist, this uh, inclination toward evil. And we got it from Adam. We're just like Adam. The question is, how, how did we get it? How did it come to us? I mean, well, why, why, why do I have to take the rap for what Adam did? Well, there are a lot of theories, and, and, and here's where we could, uh, we could get very, very theological and, and become very, very bored. But l- l- let me try to tell you as simply as, as I can the various theories that people have about how we received the, the, the sin of Adam. The, the first theory is called federal headship. Uh, based on a Latin word for covenant, fetus, not our word federal. But the idea is very similar to what we think of when we think of our federal government. We elect someone to represent us in Congress. That, that person goes off to Washington, D.C., and they make decisions. They make a decision that we now can drive 65 miles an hour if we wish, and uh, so we all drive 65 miles an hour. He represents us. He makes decisions for us, and those decisions affect our behavior. That's the theory of federal headship. It's not bad, but I don't think it goes far enough. There is a sense in which Adam represented us. He was the first of the race, and what he did, uh, the results of his actions uh, accrue to us as well. But again, it, it, it doesn't really go as far as Scripture goes in explaining of how we came to suffer the consequences of, of Adam's misbehavior. Another theory is what is called uh, the theory of natural headship or corporate personality. Uh, most of you are familiar with John Donne, Donne's uh, uh, poem. Donne was a 17th century English poet. Uh, he is the one who, uh, he, he put it this way, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod is washed away, Europe is the less, as, uh, less, as well as if a promontory were or a manner of thy friends. Every man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. 
And therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. There's this idea of corporate personality that's found in Jewish thought, and some would say that's what Paul is thinking about. We're all a part of the whole, and what Adam did affects all of us. Now, that's a possibility, too. But for myself, I think what Scripture teaches is that Adam passed on to us a genetic flaw. Sin is seminal, that is, it's in the seed. It's passed on from one generation to the next so that we come into the world tainted and flawed by this genetic tendency to to do what we please, to thumb our nose at God and to go our own way. As I said a few weeks ago, we're like a baseball with a spin on it, and sooner or later the spin breaks. I I don't think for a minute that little children are condemned and judged for their misbehavior. I I, I think little children are covered by the grace of God. But there comes a time, and I don't know when that point is, but there comes a time when we become adults, when we begin to think maturely, and that inclination becomes a conscious choice on our part. We choose to deny the truth and and to break away from, from God. And sin then begins to reign. Sin reigns. Paul says, it dominates us. It controls us. As Philip Melanchthon said, Martin Luther's sidekick, old Adam is too strong for young Philip. We are, we are dominated by our sin. That's why we uh, think things that, uh, that are unthinkable. That's why we do things that are so terribly destructive. That's why we act in, in, in ways that are, that are destructive. We know, and we know they are, to, to ourselves and, and to others. It's because we're dominated by, by sin. We have a sinful nature. And because we have a sinful nature, we die. Let's read verse 12 again so, so we understand what Paul is saying. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, through Adam... And death through sin, Adam passed on his sin nature, and he passed on death to us. In this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. That's why we die. We die because we're sinful. Death is not natural. We, we like to talk about uh, and emphasize the natural causes of death. And, and we're always alarmed by the accidental causes of death, such as is the crash, the recent crash of of Continental Flight 1713. But the fact is, as a friend of mine pointed out this last week, an airplane crashes in Idaho every day. There are many days that at least 28 people die in Idaho. And we don't like to think about that. That we tend to ignore. But the facts are we all die. As George Bernard Shaw said, the statistics on death are, are, are very interesting. One out of every one people person dies. We all die. Nobody gets out of this life alive. And what Paul wants us to understand is that death is not natural. It's not a biological necessity. Death is a result of sin. Death is the judgment of God upon us because of our sin. Adam sinned and he died. That was the judgment of God. The proclivity to sin was passed on to us. We sin and we die. 
And, and, and you see, the reason no one has been able to solve the problem of death is that no human being has solved the problem of sin. Now, this idea that, that death is the judgment of, of God upon the, the, the human race is, is an idea that's found all the way through the Old Testament. Would you, would you turn with me, please, to Psalm 90? I just want to read a section out of this psalm so that you understand uh, this, uh, this notion. It, it's, so, uh, it's so surprising to some people. They, they've... they've They've never encountered it. Uh, this, is, this is a psalm of Moses. He wrote it. And uh, he begins with worship. Speaks of God, the, the eternal one, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the, the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You're God. He's the God of eternity. I think Moses was reflecting back on Genesis 1 uh, through 3. And uh, he was reminded of God the creator the eternal one, whom he contrasts with man, the transient. You turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of Adam, literally, it's the word for men here, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Uh, my father turned 92 this year. I was thinking about that uh, over the holidays. Uh if uh, figured on the basis of a thousand years being a day, my father has lived a long time. He's lived about two and a half hours. Uh, even if we live a long time, it really doesn't amount to much, the psalmist says. Uh, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. It, you know, it's something we sleep through. We, we go to sleep at night. We wake up in the morning. We don't realize that time has elapsed. It's, it's like this. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. He changes the metaphor here from uh, from uh, brevity of time to transiency of, of life. They're like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. Uh, each generation is renewed. Children are born, but at the same time people are dying. Then he introduces a fact that we would never know apart from Revelation. We are finished, literally, by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You see, he understands that, that death is a judgment on man. It's the wages of sin. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a, with a moan, with an anticlimax. T.S. Eliot said, we, we go out of life not with a bang, but with a whimper. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their, their span, their, as the word for span here is the word for prime in Hebrew, our prime time is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we, we fly away. It's like the t-shirt. Life is hard and then we die. But what really makes life hard is that our prime time is still difficult. It's still hard. It's still, it's still sorrowful. We're over the hill and we never got to the top, you see. So who, he says, who knows the power of your, your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days that we may 
may gain a heart of, of wisdom. He's not saying, uh, just look at the brevity of your life. He's, say, he's saying, see the connection between sin and your mortality. That's what he's saying. Understand that you don't live a long time simply because you, you live under the judgment of God. It's because of sin. Now, do you understand what he's saying? I, I, I hesitate to take a lot of time to talk about this, but it's something we have to understand. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. That is the fatal sting. What puts us to death is sin. Sin is like a poisonous snake that injects poison into us and we die. That's why we die. And one of the reasons science will never, never come up with with an answer to the problem of, of our mortality is that they can't deal with the problem of sin. Someone else has to. And and that's what launches them into this discussion that follows. Now, I've taken all this time on verse 1. Don't be alarmed. We're just going to take a minute or two to talk about the rest of the paragraph. You see, Paul got to this point, and, and, and then, he got, then he got derailed. The question that was raised was, well, all right, all right, Paul, we'll go along with you. We'll agree that... That, that death is a result of sin, but uh, question. There, there was no law during the, the time from Adam to Moses. And, and, and how do you know what's sinful? So Paul says, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin was not taken into account. That is, people didn't realize that, that what they did was, was sinful. They, they knew they were sinful, but they couldn't give an exact description of, of all of their sin. It's what Paul is saying in, in Romans 7 when he points out that he thought he was keeping all the law, that he was home scot-free. And then he read the, the last tenet of, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, and it killed him, he said. He realized that he'd been sinful all along. It's so natural to want things, he never thought of that as sin. And then he realized that wanting something other than God was, was the essence of, of sin, and it killed him. He says, and and that's what Paul is saying that sin was still there; it was in the world, but it wasn't taken into account. People didn't think of it as sin when there's no no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, as did Adam. Adam broke a specific commandment of God, and even though the revelation of God's will wasn't as complete. From Adam to Moses, we know that sin still reigned. How do we know? People died. See? Do do, do you want to know that the whole universe is affected by sin? Well, just look around you. People are dying. That's the evidence. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now, you see what he's saying? One is coming. He's going to solve the problem of sin and death. As C.S. Lewis says, that the whole Old Testament, all the leaves of the Old Testament were rustling with a rumor of hope that one of these days someone was going to come along and solve the problem of sin and death. He was going to break sin's dominion over us and he was going to break the rule of death over us and he was going to set us free and he kept waiting and waiting and waiting until, as Paul puts it, the, the one who is to come came. And when he came, he gave us this marvelous gift that's described in verses 15 and, 
in following. Jesus came. What did he do? Not like the trespass. He gave us he gave us a gift. Adam gave us a gift too, but it was like sending a pipe bomb through the meal. He 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 gave us sin. He gave us death. That that's that's what what we can thank Adam for. But when Jesus came, he gave us a gift as well. It was the gift of righteousness. You understand what he's saying? The gift is not like the trespass, for if many died by the trespass of of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Adam, one man, sinned, and he gave a gift to the whole world, sin and death. Jesus came, and he acted in righteousness, and he gave a gift to the whole world. He's arguing again on this one and many principle. One came and did this, and many felt the results And his point is that Jesus gave us this wonderful gift of himself. And the result was life. Then he spells out in in detail what what that result means. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. One sin brought condemnation and death, one gift brought justification in life. It's as though Adam gave us some hideous, shocking disease like AIDS or some other venereal disease. And, and, and Jesus came and, and gave us life. Like Pasteur and Lister and Jenner and Jonas Salk and, and others. They came with the solution. Adam gave us death. He injected into our into our genes this fatal flaw that's killing us. And Jesus came and brought life. And, and then he underscores the act uh, in verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness. Adam's one act of of evil was in saying no to God and climbing over the fence and trespassing. Jesus' one act of righteousness was the cross. One act secured salvation for us. The result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. He underscores Jesus' act of obedience. Do you realize Jesus did not want to obey? He struggled with that decision all through his life. He struggled with it in the garden. Not because he was afraid to die. He was not a coward. It was because he fully understood the implications of that death. He would become sin for us. He would be eternally separated from the Father How that can be in time, I do not understand. But all I know is that our Lord took our sins in his own person on that cross, and he went to hell for it. And he was separated from the Father. Uh, In in the garden, we're told that as Jesus was praying, he began to be very heavy, is the way most translations put it. The, the, The Greek word literally means to be away from home. He began to feel homesick. Because he was already beginning to experience the weight and the burden of our sin. And the Father was beginning to separate himself from the Son. 
That's something he had never experienced before. And the horror of it is, is, is summarized in that cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew very well why the Father had forsaken him. He was simply quoting a psalm for our sake to let us know that the Father did indeed forsake him because he identified with us in our sin. John White has a, a interesting description of something that happened to him in, in his uh, book on leadership. Uh, he's describing Jesus' identification with us as sinners. When he, Jesus, came to John to be baptized, he waited in line with sinners. He was lined up waiting to be baptized by John the Baptist. He had not sinned. John hinted as much. Yet in order to fulfill all righteousness, he stood in a line of sinners who acknowledged their need of repentance. Though without sin, he chose to identify himself with sinners. He was the second Adam, the representative of our race. He refused to gather his clean robes around him or to emphasize how different from us he was. And then he gives this illustration. As a medical student, I once missed a practical class on venereal disease. Because of this, I had to go to the venereal disease clinic, uh, diseases clinic alone one night at a time when students do not usually attend. As I entered the building, a male nurse I did not know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see the doctor, I said. That's what everyone wants. Stand in line, he replied. But don't you understand? I'm a medical student, I protested. Makes no difference. You got it the same way everybody else did. Stand in line. And, and John White balked at standing in line with men that had venereal disease. But Jesus did not. He stood in line with men and women that have venereal disease, that have AIDS, that have every affliction known to man the worst of which is our sinful nature. He identified himself with us, and he went all the way, and he solved the problem of sin and death, you see. Now, I, I, I want to illustrate uh, another one of my corny illustrations. Forgive me. But I, don't, my, I have, I have a, a real burden to make truth simple. It's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to tell stories. I want to make truth simple. I want to take these concepts, which very often are, are difficult, and try to relate them to you in such a way that you can understand. I want you to imagine that you're not feeling well. You go to your doctor. The doctor discovers you have AIDS, and, and you're terminal. You're, you're, you're going to die in a, in a few weeks. There's no hope for you because there's no cure for AIDS. You start thinking back, how did I get it? And you realize that your mother and father died an untimely death, and you think, well, I must, have, I must have acquired it from my mother and father. Or you think back to your own profligate life, and you experimented with drugs, and you injected drugs, and you, and you were promiscuous. You think, well, maybe that's how I got it. But that doesn't make any difference. You got it. You're dying. And there's no cure. And they've given up on you. They, they put you in a room, and they shut the door, and they don't talk to you, and they ignore you, and you're, you're in there all alone, and you're dying. And someone comes in dressed in a white robe. He's obviously a doctor. And he says, uh, uh, my son uh, has found the cure to AIDS. What he did was to inject himself with the virus. And uh, in, 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 in some mysterious way, the solution was found to the, to the problem. And, and, and now we have this, uh, this, this elixir, this, this thing that can be injected into you. And you'll live. 
And you say, well, how much does it cost? And he says, well, it's a million dollars. You don't have a million dollars. That puts you out of the ballgame. I mean, you're going to die. But suppose he says, no, it's free. All you have to do is take it. Then all you have to do is reach up and take it. Accept, accept the offer. That's exactly what Paul is saying in the simplest sort of terms. He's saying you inherited a fatal disease from your mother and father, who inherited from their mother and father, who, if you trace it all the way back, it goes back to Adam. And the disease of sin and death and sin and death have dominated the human race from the very beginning of, of history. But our Lord Jesus himself took that sin upon himself, and he died for it. He solved the problem of sin, and now he wants to give it to you. That's the gift that Paul promises. Now, just one more comment before we're done. Paul seems to drag something in by the hair in verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why does he bring up this question of, of law? Because the notion of grace obviously raises the question of law and self-effort. Where does our self-effort uh, enter in? And, and, and any Jew would, would immediately raise that question. Who needs Christ? We have the law. And we as Gentiles uh, or, or non-Jews would say, who needs Christ? We, we have our own self-effort. We'll just try a little harder. I'll try not to lose my temper with my children anymore. I'll, 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 I'll try not to think unthinkable thoughts. Paul says it, it doesn't work. It never has worked. It didn't work in Moses' day, and, and it won't work today. I, I uh, listened to an interview with Bob Bent, who was the uh, coach of uh, Northridge Cal, uh, Cal State's football team. The first game that BSU played this year is interviewed on, on the radio. And uh, his con he, he was asked how they expected to win. His comment was, well, we're going to try not to make too many mistakes. Uh, they lost, as you remember. Uh, they made a lot of mistakes. That's the problem, you see. We, we set out to not make too many mistakes, and it doesn't work. As a matter of fact, Paul, trying to keep the law doesn't help. It makes things worse because the law simply stirs up in us all sorts of desires we never knew we had. There's a story about an English lady who complained to her vicar that he read the Ten Commandments. Uh, he said you shouldn't do that because it puts so many bad, eyes, bad ideas in young folks' minds. That's what the law does. It's, trying to scrub, it's like trying to scrub a dirt floor. It just makes things worse. You, you, you read the law and all of a sudden you want to transgress. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The only way you can clean up your act, the only way you can deal with sin, the only way you can conquer death, is to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to return a moment to those four, uh, four reigns. Paul says death reigns. Sin reigns, death reigns. Grace reigns, we reign. We have to ask ourselves, under whose reign are we living? If we've never received the grace of God, then sin and death are reigning. We're dominated by it. We're going to talk next week about what it means to be dominated by sin. The emphasis this morning in this passage is on what it means to be dominated by, by death. By death, Paul's point is well taken. If we've never received the grace of God, we're dominated by sin and death. 
But if we have received it, if we've taken that gift, if we've reached out, received that magic elixir that flows from the cross and flows into our veins as a result of, of Christ's gift, then we have eternal life. And it's funny, Paul turns it around. He says, we reign. C.S. Lewis talks about Adam and Eve as, as Lord Adam and Lady Eve. That's what they were originally. They were, they were monarchs. They were regal figures, and they lost it all in the fall. What Paul is saying is you get it back in Christ. You can reign in life. You have that nobility and dignity and poise and decency that, that comes from having royal blood flowing in your veins, the very blood of, of Jesus Christ, you see. So it's all up to you. It's up to you. No one can force the decision on you. It's all up to you. We just received word, Thanksgiving, that my father is dying. Uh, most of you, or a lot of you, know my father. Tough old fella. He just, uh, he's, he's indomitable in his spirit. He was here 10 years ago when he was 82. Came back from a trail ride in Montana. Got off the... Got off the plane, threw a saddle over his shoulder, carried it out to the car, wouldn't even let me pick it up for him. He'd been leading Bible studies for the drovers for a week on his, on his drive. And, and he's been putting Bible studies on tapes, and, you know, and, and, and now he's, he's going to die. And uh, my sister was telling me as they were driving to the, uh, to the hospital, he said, well, he said, I think this is it. They're going to carry me out feet first. And there was no fear, no fear. That's what it means to reign in life. And that doesn't come from being tough. It comes from knowing and believing and accepting the grace of God. Let's pray. Can I lead you together in this, in this prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for giving us eternal life. Thank you for being our Savior and our Lord. We accept your gift, so graciously given, at such cost to you, freely given to us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.